Would you open your Bible with me to Psalm 50, Psalm 50, a Psalm of Asaph. Psalm 50 is a unique psalm uh, in that most of the psalms, a vast majority of the psalms are prayers, uh, prayers of lament, of uh, confession, prayers of thanksgiving and praise, uh, and they run from uh, the inspired uh, heart of a, of a saint uh, to up to God. Uh, that's what most of the Psalter is. This psalm, Psalm 50, is unique in that it runs the other direction. This is a, uh, specifically a message from the Lord to His people, to the church in Israel. And uh, God has something He wants to say uh, to His people. And so uh, the title of our message this evening is A Letter to the Church in Israel. Let's uh, give our attention to God's Word, Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire, around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Let's pray together. God in heaven, again we come before your word and we thank you that you speak tonight to us. Give us ears to hear it. And Father, I pray that your word would be mighty, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us in righteousness, that we would learn true religion tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If God had something specific that he wanted to address with you, what would that specific thing be? If God had 
something that he wanted to say to you, something about your life, maybe something about your faith, your practice, uh, your obedience or lack thereof. Uh, what, what would be the thing that God would want to address? If you're a parent, uh, sometime you, uh, sometimes you know there's, there's something you need to talk to your child about. Well, you're the child of God, and if there was something that God uh, wanted and needed to talk to you about, what would that thing be? Would it maybe be a secret or besetting sin? Uh, would it maybe be your lack of a devotional life? Would it maybe be a relationship that you're neglecting or a relationship that you should not be in? Uh, have you ever considered um, that God might have a problem with your worship, that God uh, has a concern with the way you do church? He does not like the way you, you do your religion. Uh, psalm 50, as I said, is this a, a unique psalm where God takes the initiative and God speaks to his people and addresses a very specific concern, and the concern is their worship. Uh, one of the things that I think is, is striking about Psalm 50 is that it sounds, it's structured almost identically to the letters to the seven churches that we've been studying in Revelation 2 through 3. There you have uh, Jesus, the real Jesus, remember, chapter 1. He's presented as this awesome, terrifying figure. And uh, the real Jesus speaks very specifically to the churches, and every letter looks the same. There's an introduction where Jesus introduces who he is in a unique way, suited for that, uh, this occasion. And then you have the heart of the message where Jesus commends them or, or rebukes and admonishes them. And then the letter will conclude with a warning for those who do not repent and promises for those who do. And that's exactly what we have in Psalm 50. It begins with an introduction, verses 1 through 6, as God introduces himself in a specific and unique way. Then we have the heart of the message where God rebukes the people. Then a warning for those who do not repent, verse 22, and promises for those who do, verse 23. What's the significance of that? It means that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he does not change. And Jesus, the one that, as we heard this morning, who sits on the throne, has something to say to his people. The church then and the church today. And so let's just look at, we're going to go through the psalm together, beginning then with the intro, the God who speaks. Uh, the psalm begins very strongly. The mighty one, God the Lord. In the Hebrew, it's El, Elohim, Yahweh. God, the mighty God, the plural Elohim, the Trinity, although they didn't, were not aware of that fully then, but God, the mighty God, um, the Lord, the covenant name of God, the God who's bound himself to his people, God is speaking. It's as, it's as, it's as if God is introducing himself to Israel, his people. Why would he do that? Because as the psalm makes clear, they have forgotten their God. Verse 21, you thought that I was like you. They've recast God in their own image. Verse 22, mark this then, you who forget God. They still believe in God, of course. They'd all promise you they believed in God, and they were worshiping God. They just had lost touch with the real God, God as he is. And so God is offended by this, and God, with all his regal glory and moral perfection, uh, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, and he does not keep silence. He's got something to say, something to say to his people. And it's a message about judgment. 
God is going to come and judge. Now, that might have sounded good news to the Israelites, at least originally, because, well, they were praying for God to come and judge the pagan nations around them. They might well have thought, well, this is wonderful. It is high time that God um, finally enacts his righteous judgment on the world. But the, the, the surprise would be, of course, that God has come to judge his people. Verse 4. His people. Israel. And they might have thought, well, why would God be coming to judge us? We're the, we're the God worshipers. We're the, we're the children of Abraham. We have the temple and we have the sacrifices. We're the good guys. And then in the world of their day, it's very easy to imagine they're the good guys. Uh, but one of the, one of the, uh, the fatal uh, assumptions of um, God's people throughout the ages is this assumption that uh, that we are actually the good people. We're the good guys, and that God would not have a, a rebuke for us. I mean, we're reformed after all. We're not just evangelical, we're reformed. And we're not just reformed, we're orthodox in our theology. We have, we have, we have a, a book of church order that thick, right? We care about our polity. Uh, we, we have our Westminster standards, and, 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 uh, and not just a, a larger, a shorter chasm, we've got a larger catechism too. Um, we are very robust, right, in our theology and in our orthopraxis. We worship twice on the Lord's Day. Uh, we're not perfect, but what fault could God find in our worship? Well, it's critical that we hear what fault He could find in our worship because God is clearly offended. As we see in the following verses, God doesn't deny Israel's orthodoxy. He does not rebuke them for false practices, for pagan idolatry. His, his complaint isn't that they're bowing down to pagan gods. His complaint is that they're treating him like one. They're treating the living God as though he were a pagan god. They were practicing their religion but had forgotten God. And so God comes to remind them of who he really is. The psalm is divided into two main portions, verses 7 through 15, and then verses 16 through 23. I'd like to begin with the second portion, where God speaks specifically to the wicked, and then we'll look at verses 7 through 15. um, I've called these two portions the the performers and the pretenders. The the last part of the psalm is taken up with the pretenders, the flat-out hypocrites, Notice in verse 16, uh, to the wicked, God says. These are not the the pagan wicked. These are the religious Israelite wicked. And he asks them this question. You you notice how God, throughout Scripture, he asks these devastating, convicting questions. A question that that they probably have never considered. He asks them, what right do you have to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? They were, um, they were good, these wicked people of Israel. They were great at quoting Scripture and taking the, these, uh, they could recite the statutes of God and, and quote the Torah. And they, they would pride themselves on this. It became part of their righteousness. And God says, what right do you have to it? These are the holy things of God. What right do you have to take my covenant on your lips? Have you ever asked yourself, um, what right do I have to be in church? We have this, this, this crazy assumption that we're doing maybe God a favor when we come to church. 
It never dawns on us that God would say, Why are, what are you doing here? How, how dare you take my statutes, my, my laws, my commands, my word. These are holy things. How, how dare you take them on your lips? Well, why would God ask that of them? Well, he would ask it because it's evident that they have no genuine concern for the things of God at all. Their life shows the truth. Verse 17, you hate discipline, you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. Verse 21, uh, you give your mouth free reign for evil. You lie and deceive and slander even your mother's son. These things you do. God just points to their life. And he says, given that you are truly wicked people, who have no concern for the things of God, how dare you? How dare you take on these religious activities? You know, it's, it's interesting in the book of Acts where um, Ananias and Sapphira come to and, and, and lie, right, to Peter about this gift that they've made and, and then one after the other they're struck dead. And we read, a great fear fell upon all the people, and no one dared join them. When's the last time you heard that said of a church? There's not a sense in, in, in general of that there is something really holy about the church, and, and there's something about this God that is intriguing but it doesn't sound safe. That's what the church in Acts had. <clears throat> People are struck by this, this God who's real. He's real. He's not a figment of some, some uh, teacher's imagination. He's not, he's not bound in some stupid little figurine. He speaks. And things happen. Mountains quake. People die. Remember Elza? Remember Elza? Thought he was going to do God a favor and hold out his hand and, and support the ark because the cart was, was teetering and the, and the ark seemed to be shifting and, and, and good old Uzza reached out his hand to support it. Remember what happened to Uzza? God struck him dead. Uzza, what right do you have being a Kohathite, I didn't give you permission to touch the holy thing of God. That's what God, this God is like, and that's what he's saying to his people, to these wicked people. How dare you? How dare you take my holy words on your lips? Because you see, what they're doing is they're blaspheming against God. They're, they're using religion to cover themselves, to cover their sin, to gain for themselves a good reputation. Maybe even to, to ease the, the conscience, their own conscience, their own conviction. But they're just using God. Well, you don't get to use God. Not the real God. You can use your pagan idols all you'd like. You don't, we don't get to use the real God. Friend, if you're, uh, maybe you're here tonight and you're singing the songs, you're joining the prayers, but the fact is you're, you're just pretending. You don't love God, right? You love your sin. 
And it's not that you don't believe the things you hear. You do believe them in some sense. You just refuse to allow God's word to rule your life. You cast his words behind you so that you can keep doing the wicked thing that you love to do. And you maybe think that because judgment hasn't fallen, because God hasn't responded, that you're okay. And this psalm, friend, is written to tell you you're not okay. You are fundamentally not okay. Verse 21, God calls you out. These things you have done and I have been silent, you thought that I was one like yourself. You see, what sinners do is we mistake God's patience with permission. We, we, we think that God maybe is like us, that God doesn't really mean what he says. I mean, he, he threatens these things about people that, that sin and don't repent, and there's these warnings in the Bible, but it's all just posturing. I mean, God has to say that. He's God. But Jesus means that God doesn't really mean it when he says that he'll punish sin, that he'll respond to unrepentant sinners. Jesus means it's okay. Well, it's not okay. God wants you to hear, right, from Psalm 50. It's not okay. You thought that I was just like you. You thought that I was, I was just, uh, in my patience, just being lenient and, and uncaring and unconcerned about your sin and about my holiness. But God would like a word with you. Verse 21, now I rebuke you. And lay the charge before you. Mark this. Then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Dear friend, if you're living in secret, unrepentant sin, you need to know tonight that God, the living God, knows exactly what you're doing. He knows the game you're playing. And in his word, he's rebuking you and laying his charge before you. And if you do not repent, friend, he will destroy you. He could not be more clear. He will destroy you. He means what he says. He's not a hypocrite. Every syllable he speaks, he means. And it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The worst possible place from which to enter hell is from the pews of the church. You know, people in Grand Rapids, you hear this comment, well, at least they go to church. And I think it'd just be more loving to say, if, if you're not serious about God, please do not, do not go to church. Because you are offending your creator. If you're not serious, if, I mean, if you, if, if you don't, if, if you have no intent of actually worshiping him and actually knowing him and, and, and casting yourself upon him, the worst place to go to hell is from the pews of the church. Let's just be done with the nonsense, right? God is speaking and God calls sinners to repent. And he does so because he loves to forgive. He is glorified when sinners call on him and cast themselves on him, and then he delivers them, and they glorify him. That's the nature of true religion. God is speaking to the wicked not to destroy them. He's speaking to the wicked to rescue them. And then the same for the performers in verse seven, verses 7 through 15. Verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. 
against his own people. They've fallen, you see, into a dangerous sin. Uh, this not so much the sin of, of, of uh, pure hypocrisy, but a thoughtless religion of external performance rather than a desperate dependence upon God. Again, he introduces himself, verse 7, I am God, your God. Re remember me, the real God, maker of heaven and earth. It's not that they've forgotten to offer their sacrifices, verse, verse 7, verse 8. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. They're always offering sacrifices. But they've gotten the whole thing backwards. And so in verse 9 he says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Why? Because every, forest, every beast in the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. Everything that moves in the field, it's mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Well, why not? Is, does God have a pride problem? He just, he just can't admit that he has this need? He says, no, because I don't have a need. The world and its fullness is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? God is saying to Israel, what, what are you doing? You're offering your sacrifices as though you're doing me a favor. Stop doing me favors. God hates it when people do him favors. He is not a God who accepts favors. You understand that? It's offensive to him. Why? Because he doesn't... It, it is a refutation of his godness. We don't do favors for God. He's God. He owns everything. It is, it is a great offense to God when they, when they bring their gifts as, as though he is lacking something, when they, when they offer their sacrifices as though he needs them. You see, that's exactly how the pagans worship. It's sort of a, barter, a, a bargain that they strike with their gods. I'll bring you things you like and do things that please you, and then you, and then you do things that please me. I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. God just rebukes all of it. I, I don't need your sacrifices. I will not accept it. You bring me a sacrifice to do me a favor, uh, I will not accept it. I will not accept it. I uh, remember, I'll never forget, I don't think, um, listening to a minister uh, rebuke his congregation because people were complaining. I don't remember what, what, exactly what it was, but they were complaining that the worship wasn't um, just didn't seem to be meeting them, meeting their, their needs or whatever. And, and, and I remember the minister from the pulpit said, um, he rebuked the congregation, you need to stop coming to worship to get something. We come here to give something to God, not to get something. It's one of the worst things I've ever heard over a pulpit. Psalm 50 will say, God says, do not come to give me uh, something as though I lacked it or something as, as though I needed it. It's offensive. Um, well, Israel might say, well, if you don't need the sacrifices, why did you command them? That's a great question. It's a question many churchgoers could stop and ask. Why are we going to church? Well, what, really, why are you here? It's a good question to ask ourselves. If, if we're here to do business with God or do favors for God, scratch his back, do something that makes, uh, right, um, makes him happy so that God will do things that, that we need, right? that, that's idolatry, it's paganism. 
And it fundamentally misunderstands the nature of God and the nature of you and of me, the worshiper. God doesn't have any needs. God, is, God is, is, is not just waiting in heaven for somebody to worship him. He, he has no lack. He will not be made a debtor. That is his glory. Who has given to the Lord that he should repay him? No one. No one. So, so why are we doing this? You, I'm, I'm sure you've been to worship services where, where everyone just seemed to be going through the motions. I mean, the liturgy was fine. The songs were sung. The prayers were offered. The liturgy was faithfully followed. But it was strangely devoid of any emotion, any, any sense of need. People are doing it for a very variety of reasons. Maybe because they thought they were doing God a favor. See, it's just a fatal misunderstanding of worship, and God abhors it. Because, you see, it, it doesn't honor him, and it doesn't, it's not honest about ourselves. You see, God did not command Israel to offer sacrifices because he needed them. He, offered, he commanded them to offer sacrifices because they needed them. They needed them desperately because they were sinful people. And their sins had separated them from God. And their sacrifices is God reaching out to, to restore a relationship. But it must be through atoning blood. It must be through the blood, the shed blood of the sacrifice. You see, contrary to what the Israelites assumed, the sacrifices were not a, a proof of what good people they really were in contrast to the pagan nations. It was, it was, it was evidence of how wicked they actually were. That they were so wicked they could not have a relationship with their God apart from blood. Other nations, other pagans, you see, they could bring grain. Uh, they could bring some rice or some bread or, 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 or make some promises, light a candle, burn some incense. Not Israel. Israel is so messed up that they can't possibly have a relationship with the living God without Blood, lots of blood. Animals with their throats slit, bulls and goats and lambs. Every day, because their sins were such an offense to God. That was the point of the sacrifices. It points to the reality of sin and the, the devastating, deadly consequences of sin. The soul that sins shall die, and there's nothing they can do to fix it. And so sacrifices are not about giving something to God. They are about receiving something from God. And this is why the fundamental disposition of true worship is not earnestly serving God, but humble, desperate dependence on God. Remember the two men who went to the temple to pray? They both went to worship. And one looked up to heaven and said, God, I thank you that I'm not as other men are. And he pointed to all the favors he was doing for God. And the other man could not even lift his eyes, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I love that worship. That man went home justified, declared righteous before God. Love that worship. That's what Jesus says. One of my favorite old hymns is, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I got nothing. Nothing but my need. And you don't either. Right? That's the beauty of true Christian 
worship. And that's what God reminds his people of. Verse 15 really is the heart of the psalm. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. True religion is, has nothing to do with doing favors for God. It's offensive to him. It has everything to do with receiving unmerited grace, calling upon God in the day of our trouble. And that's not just car trouble or health trouble or marriage trouble. It's calling upon God in soul trouble. That you've sinned against a holy living God and you can't undo it and you can't make it right. And if God doesn't save you, you will perish. And it's true. And you call upon God in the day of your trouble, and God promises that, you will, that he will deliver you, and you will glorify him. How will you glorify him? The way the psalm says that you will glorify him is by sacrifice. Verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. This, this is the essence of true religion. We call on God in our trouble. God, we cannot help ourselves. We cannot save ourselves just as we are. With all of our sin and shame and wickedness and, and fear and unbelief, God, we come and we call upon you. And God says, I will deliver you. And then we glorify him with the prayer and praise of thanksgiving. You see, you, you will never thank God when you're doing favors for him. You will be bitter and, 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 and deeply cynical about God. I, I remember one of the saddest things I, I remember hearing on radio. It was an AM station late at night, and some lady called into a religious talk show. And this lady was just a deeply grieving, bitter woman. And, and it was so sad. She said, I, I've been, going to, been in church all of my life. I go to Mass every Sunday. I've confessed my sins. I've said the rosary more times than I could possibly count. And God took my 20-year-old son. And she was full of bitterness. I did everything a good Catholic can do. I left nothing undone. And he took my son. There are a lot of bitter, cynical, secretly bitter, cynical people in the church. Because they thought that they had a relationship with God where they could do things for him and then God would do things for them. And, and I, don't, I don't want to say anything to undermine the unbelievable sadness and devastating grief of a mother who's lost a child. But you see that underneath that bitterness, there's a misunderstanding. It's just, just such a sad misunderstanding. God is, God is able to minister to her. You see, if she would, if she would acknowledge her need and call on God as the giver not the bargainer. God says we honor him by offering the sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's one of the reasons I, I really have enjoyed John Piper. He was the first one that really woke me up to this. I remember in, in Desiring God, he just talks about this verse, actually, in the, in, the, in the chapter on prayer. It's an excellent chapter. And he talks about how do we honor people um, like a nurse. So if you're in the hospital, you got, you're, you're paralyzed, right? you broke your back, whatever it might be, how do you honor the nurse? Do you honor the nurse by saying, you know, uh, don't bother, I'll, I'll, uh, I can take care of this myself? That's not how you honor the nurse. You honor the nurse by ringing the bell. You honor the nurse by saying, I can't do it. I can't help myself. I'm helpless. I'm paralyzed. I need you to help me. That honors her ability. That honors her skill. That, that uh, anybody in the room would say, would say, this is a wonderful nurse, a capable nurse. 
We have this idea in, in, in the church so often that what we want the world to say when they see us is, that's a wonderful Christian. When, when what we, when we should want them to say is, they have a really wonderful God. The person's somewhat lousy, but I love their God. What a gracious, mighty God they have. Who, who is like this? What, what, what other God could there be that is so patient and so willing to forgive, so gracious, so loving? That's what we want them to say. Well, how, the only way they'll say that is, is, is if we're public about calling on the name of the Lord, if we're public about needing God, that we're not getting together on Sundays to pat ourselves on the back and do God favors. We're coming together because we're desperate for help. And if God doesn't help us, we're lost. And every Sunday we come back because we need to hear again of who this God is in his real truth. And we need to hear again about what he did for us in Jesus Christ. And all that's ours because of Jesus. And all that's promised to us because of Christ. And we need to hear it over and over and over. Because you see, God's deliverance has a name. His name is Jesus. And Jesus is what we need, and Jesus is the deliverance that we receive. Jesus who, who dies for wicked people, who dies so that our sins can be washed away, who gave up his life, his body as the sacrifice that actually atones for sin and is able to break the power of sin and free you and me from the sentence of death. And the way, you see, we show that we get that truth, the way that we show that we've received it and we actually believe it is we give thanksgiving. We don't, we don't, we don't say, God, I, I promise I'll do better. You come and you say, God, this is, this is who I am and this is what I need. And I receive Jesus Christ as the full provision of God for all of my need. Thank you. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this sacrifice. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your love. Thank you for all the blessings that I have in Christ. That's the sacrifice that pleases God. That shows that you understand the truth about him and the truth about you and the wonder about Jesus. Some men came to Jesus one day and they asked him, what is the work that God wants us to do? What's the work that we must do to do the work that God requires. It's very work-oriented. You know, and Jesus said to them, remember what he said? This is the work that God requires, and they're all ears. Believe on the one whom he has sent. Believe really as a needy, helpless sinner. Believe, believe as though Jesus is your only hope. Believe as though uh, without Jesus, you have nothing. Nothing is worthwhile. But with Jesus, you have everything because he is able to reconcile you to God. Friend, let me just ask you tonight, what's your relationship with God actually like? What's your worship actually like? Is it external? Or are you just kind of living a lie? Are you using religious truths and doctrines and practices to cover a secret life of sin? God, God is speaking to you tonight and calling you out. Repent. Repent. He will Tear you apart, that's what he says, if you don't. And he will wonderfully rescue you if you do. But maybe your religion has just gone cold and, and uh, you wonder why. And, and it's possible because you've gotten into the habit of, of doing things for God instead of calling out to God. 
The, the, the Christian life that, that pleases God is, is where every day we say, Lord God, help. Help me today. I'm going to lean into your promise. You say you will deliver me, and I will glorify you. And Lord, that's the life that I want. He will save every sinner who calls upon him for redemption. He will deliver you when you call upon his name. Maybe not exactly the way you would like, but always the way that best blesses you, you get the gift, God gets the glory. And that's true religion. May God help us this week. Let's be, let's be believing Christians, thankful Christians, dealing with the reality of God, the reality of ourselves, and the wonder of a Savior whose name is Christ. Amen. God in heaven, you know every single one of us here again tonight, we are not, we're not able to hide from you. But oh God, I thank you that you, you want us to know that you know so that we're forced to call out for help. God, you know our hearts. You know, Lord, if there is just a pattern of unrepented sin, where we love our sin and we, and we are loath to depart from it, and Lord, I just pray that tonight we could hear the love in your voice as you, as you rebuke us and call us to repent. I thank you, Lord, that, that the Christian life is, is a life of repenting, of day after day acknowledging that we can't fix ourselves and that we need Jesus Christ. We need his righteousness to be our own. But oh God, I thank you that is, you promise us that if we call on, out on your name, if we if we. If we cast ourselves upon Jesus, you will deliver us and we will glorify you, not by being, uh, having our act cleaned up, but we will glorify you first and foremost by thanking you. And we'll do that in this life and for all of eternity. So Lord, I, I pray that you forgive us for our false worship, our proud worship. I pray, Lord, that in this place, uh, Lord, you would Week after week, show us the truth about who you are, the real God. And week after week, Lord, help us to see the truth about ourselves, not just our sin, but as we've confessed them and called out in the name of Christ, the truth about our redemption, the truth that we are beloved children, the truth that we are heirs with Christ, and that nothing, Lord, can ever separate us from him. Father, I thank you that one day we'll get worship perfect. When we see him face to face and we'll, we'll rejoice and say thank you forever. May that day come soon. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing this psalm. They were meant to be sung. They're meant to be uh, the praise and the, the, uh, the songs of the church. Uh, this is taken from um, the Trinity Hymnal 316, The Mighty God, the Lord. Let's stand together and sing Psalm 50. <laughs> 